Hello. Hello, Dares. <laughs> Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. Yes, yes. So welcome back to episode 16. Yay. Um, so first Hi. I want <laughs> Hi, episode 16. Hello. Um, first I want to start off with saying we know this episode is being released later than usual, but as a reminder, we are medical students, which requires a complicated balance between being a dedicated student and our own mental health. So this past week, I was taking my final exams and finishing my first year of med school, which required me to take some time off from the podcast to get through that week. I just want to apologize for the late release as well. It's okay, Charlotte. We forgive you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. But I um, am so excited for this episode, most like all other episodes, honestly. But I'm really excited about today because we get to dive back into the history a little bit more. Um, I got to look at some old textbooks, which was fun. And we are just talking about the cesarean section, better known as the C-section, which I am sure many of you have heard of C-section in some capacity before, especially since it has grown so much in medicine today. But to give a very brief explanation, the C-section is where a child is delivered via the abdomen instead of vaginally. And today we are here to talk about the origins of this procedure and how it is relevant to pregnant individuals in medicine today. But before we get into that, Alicia, what do you know specifically about the history of C-sections? Because I'm sure you know like a lot about what they are and like stuff like that. But what about the history? That's good. That's a good (laughs) question that you specified that. I don't know much about the very far back history. I think maybe what I do know is pretty recent. And even then, I don't know how recent, but I know that over time, and like, I want to say in the late 20th century, and early 21st century, C-sections have become more normalized as a way to deliver babies, and specifically to a point of planning Mm -hmm. C-sections, which, yeah, I have some opinions on. But that's mostly all I know about it. And I know that people would get planned C-sections all the time. And now we're kind of moving away from that. Obstetrics is becoming more and more surgical and procedural based. So it's definitely not going away. But aspects of it are changing. Right. Great. I think that's a good place to start off with. Let's get into it. We have lots to learn. I'm excited. Let's do it. So to start off our story today, I wanted to begin with some excerpts from a couple of myths, actually. I really apologize for names, but I'm just going to go like full throttle through them and just go with it. Okay. Okay. Short myth number one. Okay. Starting quotes now. In that case, we will have to take the baby out by Shala Prayago, replied Shushruta. Shushruta had arranged all the boiled and sterilized instruments. He had also fumigated the makeshift theater with antiseptic to whom smoke. Shashruta administered the inhalant sedative, which was required to make the mother numb to pain. Procedure was started after sterilizing the mother's abdomen and spreading cotton over it. End quote. So that is myth number Mm. one. Myth number two goes, once Apollo learned of her infidelity, Coronis was killed. When the body of Cronus was to be burnt, Apollo suddenly tried to save his unborn son with the help of Hermes, and together they snatched Asclepius from the womb. Mm, and interesting. Quotes, second myth. Alicia, where do you think these 
myths are from, maybe the time period. Oh, shoot, time period. I didn't know this was a pop quiz, Charlotte. It's always a pop quiz. What do you mean? (laughs) The first one, I don't know what time period, but I think it's like an Indian or South Asian. Shushrutha sounds like an Indian name. Mm -hmm. And then I definitely know that Apollo, Hermes, Asclepius, this is like all ancient Greek. Yes, yes. So you're pretty much right. The first myth was a Hindu myth on the birth of Krishna. Oh, Krishna. Yeah. So I yeah, I know him. <laughs> I mean, we're buddies. <laughs> we we are real tight. <laughs> Myths are often like very representative of the time period they're from and like the actual practices that were happening. You know, they didn't just see into the future. So this myth was from the Puranic era, which was the golden age of Hinduism, which was between 200 BC and 500 AD to give like a very long time frame for that. But it was a long time ago. And the second myth was from Greek mythology telling the birth of the god of medicine, Asclepius, which is around the same time, which is interesting because these myths are very different for coming from the same period of time. So there were a couple things I wanted to point out from these myths. The first being that contemporary medicine history usually frames this picture that medicine began in Greece and Rome and that they were the birthplace of modern medicine. However, we know that not to be true. We have discussed it like again and again, how vast numbers of cultures have contributed to medicine. And I think these myths are a really good example of this leading into our story today. We're presented with one myth from Indian culture, talking about a detailed, well-thought-out operation on a living woman. And then a Greco-Roman myth of a post-mortem C-section, like this mom was literally killed and they're ripping the child from the body. And these mm. two myths are coming from the same era, practically. So I just want to say this because, however, despite these points, this episode still is a lot about Greco-Roman era because that's just the information that has been studied and the information that is most readily available for the general public to read without being in classes and reading textbooks, things like that. So even though other cultures are very obviously related to these conversations, the research isn't as available for us to find and talk about on this podcast all the time. So I just wanted to say that because I want to point out, we talk about Roman Greece a lot, but there's so many other cultures that play a large role in these histories. Yeah, I appreciate that acknowledgement. Hey, if you, the listener, knows some like very niche researcher, please send them our way. We'd love to have a conversation. That would honestly be so cool. non-Western. Yeah, that would be dope. Another thing I wanted to point out about these myths is the post-mortem birth of Asclepius, like, specifically. So that's kind of where our stories with C-sections begin. And you're probably okay. thinking, um, post-mortem childbirth? Like, that is not what a C-section really is. It's in, like, you would be correct by saying that. But they are how C-sections were regularly performed and documented for medical history knowledge according to mm. ancient Rome. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Okay, this is mainly because of a law called the Lex Caesarea, which was a law of ancient Rome that required the unborn child to be cut from the mother, even if the mother died during childbirth. And the creation of this law was based on this Roman custom that you could not bury a pregnant woman, um, and it required the removal of the child, kind of starting this train towards C-sections. And Alicia, how do you think these ancient procedures, like these really primitive C-sections, went for both the child and the mother if she had not yet passed and they were attempting this procedure oh god well first of all so painful 
utterly painful. I mean, live surgery is never fun without anesthesia, Mm -hmm. I imagine. I also could see probably a lot of bleeding out that happened, like maybe a lot of a high maternal mortality. And then, yeah, I'm not so sure if like the baby's outcome would be very good either. Yeah. Yeah, you're pretty much right. So it was not great for all parties involved. One, the babies were not guaranteed a good outcome because the law wasn't put in place like for medical reasons, for saving babies, saving moms, whatever. It was for religious practice to fulfill this religious role that you could not bury a pregnant woman. So many babies would honestly just die in whether from oxygen deprivation as they're waiting to be cut from like their already past mother or just being hit by the knife and delivery or delivered wrong still, et cetera. Babies were not making it out of these operations so great. And mm-hmm. for the woman, women who were alive during the operations, like there was not much chance of surviving. They did not use a sterile field. Um, oh, gosh. Obviously. Why would they don't yeah, know about, about that. sterile fields? So infection was inevitable. Like you said, the pain would be awful. You'd probably go into shock. And then also there is taking into consideration how little doctors knew of anatomy at the time. So a procedure cutting into a woman without knowing like what exactly her anatomy is, does not really bode well for recovery. So all these things are playing into C-sections, not really working out in Rome, even though they're being documented as being the first place to have successful C-sections and such, they're not really, really what we consider successful now. Right. Like, what do you think like successful is? Is it the baby's outcome or the mom and baby's outcome or? Right. Or just, I don't know, maybe in the history of the procedure, they were like, oh, we're seeing this similar method being taken place. So it's like successful, but not really because neither mom or baby's coming out well. So I don't know who decided that was successful, but not me. (laughs) Yeah, no. Which next brings us to the Renaissance age. So we're jumping forward a lot to the 1500s, because this is where a couple of things started happening for us. The first was the actual first successful C-section on a living woman that produced (laughs) a living child after. And it was first ever recorded. So of course there might've been others, but who knows? And it was done by a man named Jacob Neufer in Switzerland. And his wife had been in labor for multiple days. Midwife. Oh God. um, Yeah, people were really trying and just wasn't working. So eventually Jacob pled with the local enforcement to allow him to perform a C-section on his wife. Do you have any idea of why Jacob would maybe know what to do? Was Jacob like a scientist or something? Or like a coroner or something? He, not quite. He actually worked with animals and like neutering animals and doing like animal work, which seems kind of weird, but it's not because Jacob had some knowledge of anatomy, which allowed him to perform the successful C-section. And his child apparently lived to be about 75 years old. Oh, good for him. Yeah, so it was a great C-section. And I thought it was interesting that he knew some anatomy, especially working with animals, because of a lot of our anatomical knowledge before anatomy was truly studied humans came from animals. So for a long time, like scientists and doctors just thought that our anatomy was the same as an animal. So like maybe they thought we had two stomachs. If a goat also had two stomachs, I don't know how many stomachs goats have, but for example, they just related animal anatomy to human anatomy, but that 
boded well for Jacob because he was able to perform a successful C-section. I'm so glad he saved his wife. I know, and had a beautiful child. What a love story. What a freaking love story. <laughs> Goals right there. But, okay, so at this point, Jacob had some basis of anatomy knowledge, but this was also the time, we're in the Renaissance, to remind y'all, this was the time that anatomy was actually starting to pick up in terms of like human anatomy and human dissection because for so long body snatchers yeah before like it was taboo to dissect humans so they just didn't and then suddenly they were like we should baby look at humans and yeah body snatchers people would kill other people just to dissect them. it was a grotesque time but either way Anatomy was becoming more well-known. One of the greatest anatomy works, um, like early anatomy works was published at the time. It was called De Corpus Humani Fabrica. It's a very beautiful anatomy text. They're all like drawings. Some of them are like, definitely take artistic license, but they're cool. And there's one accurate picture of female anatomy in it that's showing the uterus and the ovaries. It even has like the kidneys in the right place. Wow. <laughs> Very impressive. Yeah, now we're actually starting to understand human anatomy, um, which allowed for medical advancements and surgery as well, because you're not going to be able to perform good surgeries if you don't know what the heck's going on in the body, because it truly right, just kind of looks right. like mush in there. So Ew, yeah, you have to understand what the mush is. So with that, we are going to fast forward to the 1800s. And this is where the C-section is really picking up steam. So around this time, our good friend anesthesia was becoming a real hit. So surgery was really taking off as a profession, but, and this is crazy, anesthesia in C-sections was not allowed at the time. Excuse me? Yeah. Because it was so widely believed that women had to endure pain during childbirth. (gasps) To Christian thought. (laughs) I... God. Yep. Due to thought that because of Eve's sin in with Adam oh. and Eve, that women were destined to go through pain while giving. Birth. Oh, I think I've heard of this. Maybe we talked about this. Insane. So yeah, it, like legally, anesthesia was not allowed during C sections at the time, even though it was used in other surgical procedures in the 1800s. At least until Queen Victoria gave birth to her twins and she was like, give me the anesthesia. And because she was the queen, they were like, okay, (laughs) I guess we'll give anesthesia to women now since the queen needed it too and she's the queen. That's what using your privilege looks like. Yep. So Queen Victoria is out here hanging out with Florence Nightingale and being like, all the women deserve anesthesia. (laughs) They all need it. She was right. Yes. She was using her privilege correctly. So once we got over that hurdle of the whole craziness of no anesthesia c-sections were the new big thing because with anatomy and forceps being created and there's other medical devices under our belt now women having troublesome labors were able to choose c-sections over a procedure called a craniotomy like in the context of childbirth that would have better outcomes for them and their children hopefully but alicia in terms of a craniotomy so what do you think is going on there like for c-sections why would they perform? Yeah, because I was thinking about this when you said that in my head. I was wondering if I just am dumb and I didn't know because I thought a craniotomy was removing the brain from the body. Right. So when you asked what it was in the context of childbirth, I was just thinking that I should know that answer and I don't <laughs> at all. 
are they like pulling out? Well, I don't know if forceps are involved. Forceps are very sus to me. That's when you have these things that look kind of like kitchen tongs. Mm-hmm. And then you put them like in the birth canal. The baby's already descending. You put them in the birth canal and then you kind of squeeze their head and like pull them out. It's very bad for the baby. It can deform their little baby heads. Uh, little baby but heads I don't, are so malleable. They're so malleable, like little Play-Doh babies. But I don't know what a craniotomy is. Well, it's okay because I had absolutely no idea either when I saw this in my readings and I was like, what is going on here? And I had to further research it. So it is a procedure that was practiced for pretty much all of history, it looks like, and maybe even in some areas of the world today. And it is when a birth is very difficult for a mother and the mom, it, it gets to the point where the mom just needs to be saved and the baby is either already passed or just that's not the focus of the procedure. And so they use the forceps to break the infant's skull and then they pull out the baby piece by piece and able to (gasps) save the mother. Oh, so the baby does not survive said craniotomy. Baby does not survive craniotomy. So that's really awful, like really barbaric practice, honestly. That's but terrible. When you don't have any other methods, who are you going to hate on for trying to save the, your patient in that moment? And you have literally nothing else to do. Really, C-section is such this incredible advancement because now you're able to save both the mom and the baby, which is up to that moment had not been possible, really. That's yeah, huge. that's true. Really huge. Well, at least most of the time you're saving the mom and the baby because even with the advancement of the surgery, the moms did not always make it out all right. Right. So between 1787 and 1876, not a single woman survived a C-section in Paris. Oh, my God. Like for 90 years. Not a single woman survived. Excuse me? Yes. Imagine like your entire career plus your child's career and you didn't save a single one of your patients. That's so terrible. I know. Who would just continue performing them? I, yeah, that I that really goes to show like the value of a woman's life is only her childbearing potential. Yeah. Like if you only focus on that one fact, that's kind of what I would take away from that one fact. Right. And also until like the mid 1800s, the germ theory wasn't yet a big thing. So surgeons oh, yeah. would literally just walk into surgery without a literal care in the world. And they would leave the woman's uteruses open inside the body. And, you know, they were just spreading infection. like crazy they go straight from home to the hospital and just start doing surgery they wouldn't even sew the uterus back up they just would like leave the uterus open inside the body and then close the woman up and send her home oh my gosh the uterus is gigantic when you have a child it's huge Mm -hmm. literally 500 times the normal size and it already has trouble like clamping down after childbirth anyway yeah so There was like increased infection due to just not being sterile. And like hemorrhage. Like I imagine there's like a lot of bleeding. Internal bleeding was very bad and a lot of death. Yeah. So even though C-sections were being so said to be and so improved at this time, women were still dying. And it wasn't until 1820 that in the British Empire, the first successful C-section took place by a woman actually by the name of James Miranda Stuart Berry. Quite a name. And she performed wow. the procedure while dressed as a man. 
to get into the hospital and be a doctor. Go James Miranda Stuart Berry. <laughs> Love you, girl. But the advancements of C-sections were not only found in Europe at the time. So a British traveler actually discovered that Uganda's indigenous people have been performing C-sections for some time. And he observed a procedure by one of the local doctors that went as fouls. So the surgeon would use a banana wine. To cl- banana wine? Yeah, I know. Where can I get myself some of that? You know, I bet if you look really hard, it's at Trader Joe's for sure. (laughs) But yeah, he would use banana wine to clean his hands and then have the woman drink some. So she was a little bit intoxicated for the procedure to numb it all up down there and also use the banana wine to cleanse her abdomen. So kind of sterilizing everything. That makes sense. I mean, it is alcohol. I'm looking into it and it's a (laughs) sweet smelling homemade beverage with a light fruit flavor, honey color and unique taste. After the banana wine, they would make an incision, like a midline incision. And then they would use caught like they would cauterize using a hot iron to stop the bleeding like as they're going through the surgery. And then once the baby was born, the uterus would be massaged and cleaned of any blood clots Mm -hmm. in the placenta. So just cleaning like it all back up. And I thought it was interesting that they also did not suture the uterus back together, but these patients came out all right. Interesting. I don't know how like the uterus massage and cleaning it of all blood that could have been left in there to cause extra bleeding and doing the cauterizing and everything like that, I think really played into the natural healing process of the uterus maybe. I don't know. I think so. I know that we still massage the uterus and stuff to help it clamp down after birth. Mm -hmm. But since you're so prone to blood clots, also cleaning it up would probably help. So yeah, that's a very interesting. Yeah. That's very adept of them. Right. So then they would close the abdomen back up. They'd put some iron needles in the abdomen and put paste of plant roots over it and wrap it in some leaves. Mm. And then- patient was good to go. And then they would check in on them every once in a while for her recovery. They would replace the root pulp and they would remove any of the pus and just kind of clean the wound and remove the iron needles. And so she was all healed and she was good to go. And when was this again? This was in Uganda in like the 1800s. That checks out. Non-Western medicine is so much more open to using like herbal medicine and stuff like that. So that makes sense. Yeah. But I thought this was a great story because it just reminded me a little bit of like the Hindu myth because it's so there's so much procedure in it and it's going so well and there's so much thought you know it just shows how the development c-section was so spread across cultures at the time because we're in Uganda they have a very meticulized way of doing this and it seems to be very successful and then they're in Paris and like every single patient's dying it's not fair to only watch look at a history from one side of it because the other side of the world might already have it down and they're like y'all are behind us by so much right. um so right. i thought that was really cool that that was observed and like noted and brought back for people to study too and, but you're probably wondering like what about today what about c-sections today we hear about c-sections all the time well some statistics from 2019 showed that 31.7 percent of births are done by c-section I think this is the United States okay. as well. Um, okay. 25.6 of normal healthy pregnancies born by C-section and 86.2% of women who have had a previous C-section had repeat C-sections for later births. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, like you're not supposed to have vaginal birth after you have C-sections, but that's also bad, I think, because the more C-sections you have, the more scar tissues building up in your abdomen and your uterus. There's also a lot of 
social determinants and like factors that go into that specifically in the VBAC calculator and the race coefficient in that calculator because the VBAC mm. calculator is a it's supposed to be like gore that you get determines or is a predictor of the success of a vaginal birth after having had a previous C-section. Okay. But yeah. Cool. All right. So C-section is very high. It's basically like one in every three births is by C-section now. And there's a couple of reasons for why these C-section rates are so high that I just want to run through quickly because there's like a million reasons, but some three big ones. One is the birth of fetal medicine. Mm. So in the past like hundred years or so, medical advancements in ultrasound and fetal heart monitoring and genetic testing, like things like that have allowed us to pay so much attention to fetal health because before mm-hmm. its advancement, fetal health wasn't nearly as important as mother's health. The baby was not really considered as important of a life until it's outside of the body because no one was able to know what was actually happening to the baby in the mom. You could estimate and use alternative methods to kind of see what's going on, but you couldn't really do anything or know a lot. And a lot of the health of OB was really just focused on the mothers. Mm-hmm. So just more knowledge in fetal health and it becoming an actual field, like there's maternal fetal medicine. Um, it just has led to a lot more C-sections to ensure safe delivery and outcomes, especially in complex pregnancies. The next point is defensive medicine. So this is based on how OBGYNs are being sued at alarming rates. And it leaves them Mm. like really nervous about their practice and that they're trying to kind of cover their behinds while (laughs) caring for their patients and doing everything they can to indicate that they have done their best to ensure safe delivery. So sometimes that means they will just deliver by C-section because it shows that if something were bad were to happen to the baby during birth, at least they had tried everything because they had used the most advanced procedure to ensure that safe delivery. Which when you go mm. in court with that, it stands a lot better than just than doing a vaginal birth when they're like, why didn't you do a C-section when it's safer? Things like that is pressuring OBs to practice a certain way, leading to more C-sections. Right. And then last thing I wanted to mention was that women just can control birth with C-sections. They're able to schedule a C-section. They can choose when they want to have birth and what hospital they want to have birth in and how they want birth to go. And just, they can control every part of it. They can get rid of the pain and any anxiety that has to do with birth if they have the means and access to do so. What I find most interesting about the increase in C-section numbers is actually the increased role that OBs have in childbirth now over midwives. Especially because mm-hmm. midwives are trained to focus on vaginal delivery. Yeah. So everything they do throughout a pregnancy is focused on having that successful vaginal delivery at the end. And the only reason a midwife would ever call for a C-section is if there was an unexpected complication presented that would be way too dangerous to proceed vaginally. And yeah. for centuries, this is the way midwives helped women. But with the development of surgical tools and these procedures that were being curated by men, profession's title shifted to men, which the like launching point for OB and moving away from midwifery. That is interesting. However, I'm not really sure why this transition from midwives to OBs took place because as we talked about, women were not really surviving C-sections at the time. And many women were actually having more successful births in the countryside with their midwives. Because Mm. midwives had a better understanding of birth. They were cleaner. Giving birth via C-section required a hospital, 
which required you to go to a hospital at the time, which we know from Florence Nightingale, the hospitals were not really the cleanest places to go and receive care. Oh, definitely care. not. Literally run away. <laughs> yes, at top speeds. Do not give birth there. So the women who were giving birth in hospitals via C-sections were actually dying at much higher rates because, you know, you could just get an infection from being in the hospital, just from bad hospital, bad public health. Not really sure why it was shifted because midwives were doing a great job with vaginal births, but sometimes procedures just take a hold and people think they're cool and exciting and go towards them despite the risks they might cause. I think this is still seen greatly today. I feel like it's really rare to hear a woman having a midwife alongside her pregnancy, um, like rather than her OB. And there is a balance between whether to cut or not. And it's a controversy across the profession and across women today. And I want to say the quote that I read in one of my old textbooks of mine, and it's actually an old Roman omen pertaining to C-sections. Because as I mentioned, like, Asclepius was born via C-section. There was this Roman omen, which goes as such. C-sections solve the problem of masculinity by eliminating the female as a generative force. But basically, the omen was if you were born by C-section, then you were thought like you were destined to be a hero. You were destined to be strong. You were destined to be independent. Because by being born by C-section, you were taking away the feminine, motherly involved side of childbirth. And men were able to focus so greatly on the reproduction of sons without the mother being influenced. Which I just thought was so weirdly relevant to like the debate of C-sections today. C-sections kind of boils down just like women are reproducing as the the role. That's literally what I was just thinking about is that women are vessels to have children. Yes. And that's exactly what the Romans saw C-sections Like an incubation tank. But before we end this portion, I just wanted to give a couple quick facts on C-sections. So one, unlike much of history, the Roman Catholic Church actually wanted C-sections to happen and to be developed, which is so against everything else because the Roman Catholic Church were like, no, 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 do everything ever. But let's hear the reason. Give me, lay the reason on me. The reason is, I got you. I have the reason. They wanted the babies to be able to be born because remember before C-sections, they were picking babies out piece by piece in a very grotesque way. Jesus. So they wanted yeah. these babies to actually be born so that they could be baptized right after birth. Ah, especially that, if you that's had a, it. Especially if you had a stillbirth baby, like they still want them to be baptized as soon as possible. And oh, C-sections allowed for that. Um, also, C-sections rates are very high for affluent women, um, especially for like unnecessary reasons which can point, one article was saying it points to the medical system using women sometimes, especially just over-treating women who can afford it and might see it as a great option because the doctor says so and leads to these unnecessary procedures. So the rates are very high for most women, but affluent women. And they're also very high for Black, Latina, and Native American women. We're receiving C-sections at very high rates. And these like stats at very high rates have nothing to do with increased risks of high-risk pregnancies and things like that. That might also be a factor, but just as a baseline, these women, Black, Latina, Native American women, are receiving high-risk C-sections for basically no reason. An indicator, this article was saying, 
of just low quality maternity care and just overuse of the procedure and not really thoroughly looking at the patient and deciding what to do with them. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, C-section rates might be influencing human evolution, like in anatomical reasons concerning the birth canal is being affected because now you don't need the birth canal. And also it could be having emotional effects on evolution because vaginal delivery requires so much emotional support because there's so much pain that's associated with it. And just you're able to have more people in the room with the vaginal delivery, just your support system can really be there for you and C-sections, not so much. So it's kind of taking away from that emotional side of childbirth, which emotion and just fear and things like that play such a large role in evolution of all animals. So that can have effects on humans as well. Yeah. And all the topics I just mentioned, like can be further discussed in many ways, but I didn't really have the time today or the means, but I just wanted to bring them up here at least for food for thought and for things to look into on your own and top like points we can make in our discussion as well. Before we get into said discussion, I just wanted to end this section with a quote from a Harvard pediatrician by the name of Anna Langer that I think really sums up the state of C-sections today and leads really well into our talkity talk. So her quote goes as follows. A balance needs to be reached that will allow for women to have normal deliveries with as little intervention as possible and at the same time be ready to address any unexpected emergencies. Yeah. Which I was like, oh, that was so beautifully put. Yeah, that is. But with that, that is the end of my short, brief history of C-sections. Yay! Do you want to get into the discussion, Alicia? Yes, I would love nothing more. So as always, Alicia, let's begin with what are your thoughts on said history? Thinking uh, the first thing that really stuck with me was what you were saying before about OB-GYNs and surgery and how it's becoming like more of a surgical specialty or more procedural and Mm -hmm. was at the time. And that's what kind of shifted the dynamic from midwives to physicians delivering birth or Mm -hmm. delivering babies. Um, and also like made because men were the center of the field, it like launched the field into the place that honestly that it exists today in. Mm -hmm. It also had me thinking about the bonus episode that we had where we sat down with Dr. Deb Berman Mm -hmm. and Dr. McKean, but like Deb Berman is a maternal fetal medicine physician at Michigan Medicine, which if you haven't listened to that episode, you 100% should. It's our first bonus episode and it was so great. It's fantastic. Um, but the topic was like very relevant to what we're talking about now, which is the idea that um, certain specialties kind of move up and down in rank and prestige based on seemingly arbitrary criteria. And there is some unexplained reasons for specialties that have a predominantly female like group of people practicing in it or predominantly female specialties. And there is just an unexplained reason for why they lose prestige. Yeah. And so I just think that's really interesting um, because C-sections are a big part of the procedures that OB-GYNs do. And it's that procedural surgical aspect that has like shifted 
OBGYN like forward as a field. Right. And I think we talked a little bit about in, in our other bonus episode with Dr. Stephanie Fabian about how like OB is becoming so procedural. Like she was talking about how it's pushing menopause out of that specialty because yeah. they're moving away from medicine and moving to surgery so much. Procedures really change specialty. All right, moving on. So I talked a little bit about how OBs are delivering via C-section more often due to high rates of suing. I recently heard a maternal fetal medicine doctor talk about this exact topic and about how a large part of his practice are referrals from general OBs who are just trying to like get the maternal fetal medicine doctor on their patient's charts for a complicated surgery just so they can show they, you know, did every mean possible to make sure the patient was going to have a good delivery. I thought this really was a good example of like, even now, um, how there's so much fear in the medical system and fear of being sued. And like, what does that say about the system and how it influences care today? If you have any thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that kind of comes up for me is that this is been something that I've thought about that has come up before in my life. People I care about a lot who care about my career and want me to excel, they brought up to me this idea or conception, potentially misconception that they've had. Insurance is something that OB-GYNs deal with a lot and Mm -hmm. being sued is a big problem. And so that's like a big reason to not go into the field. And actually, a lot of states are trying to make caps for for insurance premiums for physicians to kind of try to combat this exact issue. Okay, um, I didn't know that. But I don't know as much about it, but I remember learning about it a bit and putting a mental note in my mind to learn more about it. So I will revisit that. But that's definitely very real. And the other thing I was thinking about is something that you were mentioning, you mentioned before, where you talked about, quote unquote, advanced procedures being better or equating Mm -hmm. to being like a better kind of treatment. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it stems from this idea, right, of like to do more equals to do better. Mm -hmm. Um, rather than an act of patience or like limiting harm is Mm -hmm. also an active choice, but it feels passive. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that really made sense. It was kind of confusing, but. No, like by you're trying to do more, but really you could just do less and it would still be as beneficial. Yeah. But in this case, like, I think what physicians don't do in terms of, like, C-sections is, like, the act of patience and the act of not doing harm. Because the, the thing that we're mm-hmm. thinking about here is, like, to do something is to do better. But sometimes the act of not doing something is doing better. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And that's kind of, like, what the maternal fetal medicine doctor was talking about because people are just like, what is your general practice look like and he was like a lot of it is just regular OBs asking me questions they already know the answers to they'll take like all those extra unnecessary steps to talk to another doctor just to put it on the record when they can just do it themselves and they don't need to do so much to have the same care for a patient insurance does what it wants Um. I know I mean like because that does make sense logically but then I'm like oh it's a liability thing at that point Mm -hmm. it's like oh I like 
I did put in the effort to make sure that they got the best care possible, which is exactly what you're saying the problem is. And I hear that. Yeah. It is confusing. Yeah. And it kind of like gets in the way too, I feel like, of care. Like think of the maternal fetal medicine who doctor who feels like they're kind of having their time wasted by doing consults that they don't really need to instead of focusing on patients who actually really need their help too. So I think there's a lot of gaps in the system that need to be filled. All right, moving on. Okay, Alicia, so you were previously a doula. So from your experience as a doula, um, what are your thoughts on like the over-medicalization of childbirth and how a woman and their doctor should approach birth plan, specifically talking about like C-sections and not C-sections, things like that? That's a good question. And I think I've thought a lot about this, especially with my background in women's studies, because my first class that I ever took that introduced me to feminist thought was taught to me by a midwife. Um, And so when we were talking about childbirth, we spent a lot of time talking about the over-medicalization of the birthing process. And this was before I was even a doula or even, I was interested in medicine at the time, but I wasn't really as interested in OB-GYN as I am now, so it was something that was never really on my mind. But for context, a birth doula is someone who supports pregnant moms, um, pregnant individuals, because I also want to acknowledge that a lot of the language that we've been using might be cisgendered or has been cisgendered, um, but I do, of course, want to acknowledge that anyone with a uterus has the potential of having a child. And so what birth doulas do is that they support these individuals in their birthing process, and Mm -hmm. they've been known to decrease mortality for both baby and mom, to increase birth outcomes, positive outcomes on both sides, um, physically and emotionally. And so they're wonderful. And I'm very honored to be trained as one of these individuals. Mm -hmm. But from my perspective, I think the most poignant example I could give is just seeing the differences between a midwife birth and an OB birth. Mm. It's the night and day. The midwife birth is like you can be in multiple positions. You can labor in like multiple positions. For an OB, you have to be in stirrups on your back because they're mm. the in case something does go wrong, the OBs are only trained to tackle the issue from one position. Mm -hmm. And so it's very limiting in that way. Um, And I think that's like a consequence of the over-medicalization of childbirth, right? And Mm -hmm. it's this idea that like the outcome might go awry, which I understand, but then we're not trained to adapt to those situations. So I think that's a problem. And yeah, additionally, I will touch on the what I mentioned before. And I honestly think it deserves its own episode and Mm -hmm. its due diligence. But this idea of a VBAC calculator and um, having a vaginal birth after cesarean, um, I think because of the high rates of C-sections, C-sections breed more C-sections. And so Mm -hmm. we're also harming mom's future birth outcomes by doing C-sections, especially elective, planned, scheduled Mm -hmm. C-sections. We're harming mom's future birth outcomes by doing those. Right. 
Yeah. And isn't it like more likely to like rupture your uterus and things like that during C-sections? Yes, it does. Because so the thing is the number one um, cause of maternal death worldwide is this thing called uterine apnea or Mm -hmm. atony, which is the idea that after you give birth, there's many things that can cause the uterus to not be able to clamp down from its gigantic size. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, you're at increased, you are at increased risk of internal hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so lots of things can cause uterine acne, including but not limited to general acne, like maybe that's just how your uterus is. Uterine fibroids, which are incredibly common, especially Mm -hmm. in Black women, previous C-sections, and any scar tissue, basically anything that can cause the uterus to not be at its full flexible muscular capacity because there's scar tissue or damage in some way, that Mm -hmm. would lead to the uterus not being able to clamp down and just like shrink and clot up Mm -hmm. and return back to its normal size. Gotcha. It is very interesting. And there's a lot of like biopsychosocial, social determinants of health that like play into these things. Right. Um, Great. Yeah. Well, with that, I think we're good to go. Yeah. Seems like there's always more to touch on, which I know I always feel like satisfied, but unsatisfied at the end. So I'm like, oh, that was great. But there's also, I have so many questions now. (laughs) I know. I know. Me too. All right, so if you want to continue in our conversations and learn more about all these topics we just mentioned in further depth in later episodes, then go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on whatever podcasting app is your favorite. And also while you're over there, leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts is the best place for that. We would really appreciate that. It helps us get higher up on charts and get more notice on the apps. Yes. And of course, you should follow us on our social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook. We're hanging out over there. And if you want to check out our show notes and sources and our merch, you can go to fromskirtstoscrubs.com. Yeah. We've had a lot of people buy socks, mugs, big fans all around. Bags. They're great. Yes. And Mm. as our podcast grows, we're interested in doing more collaborations and making bonus content for you all. So if you or someone you know is interested in working with us, shoot us an email or an Insta DM. Yes. And of course, lastly, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yes. Okay. See you guys next time. See you. Bye.